Welcome to How to Trade It, The Road to Trading Mastery. Join Casey Stubbs, a seasoned trader, as he guides you to become a profitable trader. Find actionable insights, real-life stories, and strategies to boost your trading skills. Don't miss the journey to trading victory. Start listening now. Connect with us at podcast at tradingstrategyguides.com. Trading profits are just an episode away. This is the Finance and Markets Cashflow Hacking Podcast, streaming to you live, teaching the methods behind unlocking long-term wealth. Your host, Casey Stubbs. Hello, this is Casey Stubbs for the Finance and Markets Podcast. Today, our guest is Edward Stringham, the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. He's a professor at Trinity College and also the author of Private Governance from Oxford University Press. Edward, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, Casey. How are you? Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And uh, can you give us a little bit of background? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm an economist. I run an 85-year-old economics institute, which was founded as people were worrying about the uh, monetary policy in the 1920s, leading to what ended up happening, the great, we all know, the Great Depression. Um, The founder of the institute created it in 1933, right as the federal government was confiscating Americans' gold and to basically just be warning the public, educating the public about what can go wrong when we give the regulators or the government too much power over our money. So we are a educational research institute to educate Americans about the benefits of things like markets, private property, and sound money. Excellent. So I'm just going to jump right into it because you just said what happens when the government has too much power. I want to ask you, does the government have too much power right now? I would say so. I would actually argue that the downturn of 10 years ago not only was caused by government officials, specifically various regulations to mandate more loans to people who could not afford those loans, And then caused by various regulations uh, with accounting. There was this thing called the mark-to-market accounting standard. And then huge fluctuations by the Federal Reserve of uh, interest rates for the banks. And then all of a sudden, things came crashing down. And I think it was not so bad, though, until government got really involved when they started nationalizing banks, nationalizing certain uh, financial institutions. I think that actually made it much worse. So it started out bad. And I would say the solution was what way worse than the symptoms of the preliminary disease that the government also caused. Okay, so the government has too much power, they're making bad decisions. And these decisions are actually hurting businesses too much regulations are choking businesses. I'm in the finance industry. And I see business after business after business going out of business until only the strong can survive the ones that can afford the massive lawyer teams, the ones that have the big budgets. Uh, What can we do right now to help uh, turn the tide back towards 
uh, individual consumers and give them some power and not let the government have all the power. Sure. Yeah. So the consumer, consumer financial protection bureau, I would actually argue was a huge power grab. It created a largely unaccountable government agency as part of the Dodd-Frank regulations. And these regulations actually had the effect of harming smaller banks, community banks, the large banks like Citibank, they can actually, you know, they're not happy about it, but they can bear the cost, the brunt of these regulations in a much better way than the smaller banks. Now, it's not helping anybody in the financial sector, but it's really hammering the smaller guys. And we see a huge increase in market share of the large banks ever since we've been ramping up regulation over the past 10 years. So it's really just, uh, I would say, counterproductive. I would say it's not good for the big banks, but it's especially bad for the smaller banks. Now, I think that luckily there are some people out there who realize it. It's a disaster, Dodd-Frank is a disaster crafted by people who frankly, frankly, I would suggest don't really know too much about economics or financial services. And I'm not trying to single out uh, these two people specifically, but I think this problem is fairly widespread when we have government officials regulating markets without actually understanding them that well. Yeah, well, I think they probably had some really good advisors that were telling them how it would benefit them and not how it would benefit the economy or the American people. Oh, yeah. It's a huge, I would argue, a huge power grab. And uh, it just made things very difficult. You know, there's the classic story of Ben Bernanke. He could not even refinance his loan. He He couldn't qualify. So I do think people are smartening up that this promise, this panacea of regulations is going to solve everything. It's just frankly not true, uh, in my humble opinion. And a lot of people are realizing that it's not stimulating business and it's only adding red tape to the economy. Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about now, uh, what's happening now. How do you feel like the market is moving What and the economy? Uh, what do you think is going to happen for the future and also the future for regulations? Sure, yeah. So I always view current market state as a race uh, between the productor sector of the economy, I'll just call that the market, and the state. And at certain times, the state becomes more powerful and drags down the market. On the other hand, we do see a relaxation of regulation over the past year, which I would argue is very good, especially financial regulations. The a lot of these positions are just not getting filled. The head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau said, I'd like to request money now, uh, and it is $0. I care about the taxpayer, which is just really unheard of for a uh, government official to say that. I, I just was uh, chuckling. So that's good. On the other hand, we do have increases in government regulation, specifically regulation of international trade which includes all types of tariffs and various proposed trade barriers. And I think that's hurting markets. So you've got, you know, these good policies, these bad policies, and it's like, okay, which one's more important? Overall markets are up, but I think, you know, these policies don't need to continue to be so anti-business. Just let American businesses do what they do best, help the consumer, 
help advance our economy. Don't drag them down all the time. That's my, my suggestion. Yeah, and the, the, the funny part about dragging down consumers is it seems like it's always championed to be the best interest of the consumer. We're here to help you. We're here to protect you. We're here to make your life great when really they're just putting a, a heavy burden on them. That's right. I, I'm from the regulation agency and I'm here to help. Uh, in reality, a lot of these regulations, fortunately, they get crafted by certain special interests. So some companies or, or financial institutions who are otherwise great companies, they have an incentive, unfortunately, to work with the regulators to say, okay, here's what we're doing. Maybe we can help craft it in this way. And then all of a sudden, all the other people say, well, wait, what? Why do we want to comply with Citibank's internal compliance standards? Well, Citibank says, oh, this is great. Cool. We just have these in place already. And everyone else is like, oh, my goodness. Now this is just so costly. So the people I talk to, they just say, one, one of my friends, she said, yeah, they're turning our world up and upside down. Uh, on the other hand, I do. I am guaranteed this job <laughs> forever of having to do all, all this crazy regulatory compliance. Hello, this is Casey, and I wanted to take a minute to tell you about my new book that just came out. It's called Complete Trading System. This is my 25 years of trading experience sharing everything that I have learned in how to make a profit from the markets. You're going to learn about how to find the right instruments to trade, how to find a trend, how to get started as beginners. You're going to learn about how to get the right mindset and you're going to be able to put it all together to create a trading system of your own that will work for you. I highly recommend that you try it out. Just click the link right now. It's called Complete Trading System. It's available on Amazon. Thank you. Go ahead and check it out. I think you're going to love it. Well, that is the thing is uh, with regulations and the tax industry and all of these massive uh, bureaucratic things is they do create jobs for those industries. You know, you got uh, attorneys and, and yeah. so it's a massive industry in itself. Uh, right. But do you think that in itself is healthy for the economy? I would say it's, uh, it's unnecessary. So you can hire 20 armed guards to, uh, you know, stand around your ha house if you're afraid uh, that all your neighbors are burglars, but if, if you don't have a bunch of burglars around your house, you don't have to waste money on all of these armed guards. So I do think certain amounts of security are always going to be necessary. Everybody always was, will always have a lock on their home and that's good. People are always going to have to hire accountants to uh, make sure they are complying with um, the latest, you know, tax rules. They're going to have to hire other types of um, internal compliance people to help deal with the latest regulatory state. Uh, but, you know, how much of this do we need? Is it, is it good? Is it necessary? I would argue that the more red tape that we have to deal with, the more it's going to be distracting us. So another guy I know said that when he first got involved with financial services, deal making, it was 
90% of his time was deal making, 10% compliance. Guess what now? Reverse. So who wants to get into this industry to just, oh my goodness, now I've got to deal with this regulation, that regulation, that regulation, this regulation, this regulation, that, that regulation. Okay, okay, okay. It's like they can't actually be the productive financial sector that they used to be. And at this point, frankly, we're faced with a lot more international competition than we might have been just even in the 80s. As a businessman, I'll tell you, I would rather spend my time deal-making than compliance. I love deal-making. I like creating stuff. That's what entrepreneurs are. They're creators. They like to build. And we like to tear through obstacles, too, but when the compliance is a little little more than what we want to deal with. Uh, (laughs) So, Edward, what do you think is a really good economic policy that would promote the most growth? Like what type of economic stuff should we really be trying to promote? I would say we should look simply back into our history and look at why this country became the financial capital of the entire world. Okay. And this was just very quickly, this basically uh, by world war one, it was clear the United States was the financial capital of the world. And I will argue simply it was because of our embrace of capitalism. You can look at all the other countries in Europe, especially uh, in the 20th century, moving towards uh, socialist policies, frankly. Even in uh, England, they nationalized the London Stock Exchange during World War I. Not helpful. Not helpful to have so much control over the economy versus unleashing the entrepreneur, letting markets work, letting the invisible hand control how people get to interact freely. Buyers and sellers getting together, whether that's physical goods, whether that is financial services. I think there's a lot of great things now with FinTech uh, going on, a lot of things related to blockchain technology. So there's a lot of innovation going on, even uh, Silicon Valley style innovation going on in financial services. And that's good. I would just say, let's, Keep it up. Let's keep allowing it and not get government in the way. Okay. Now, do you believe that if the government totally steps back, then the balance of power can get shifted and it can reverse the other way? Like we look at the early 1900s, we had a lot of big businesses like, you know, Carnegie and Rockefeller and those guys were really powerful and the government started to be afraid of those guys. So can that balance of power shift when the markets are too free? Oh, I mean, I actually think that all those guys, uh, Carnegie, um, Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, I think they were doing tremendous good, actually, by improving shipping, oil, financial services, um, even electricity. So that was great. And I personally have a lot more faith in people like uh, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or any of the big Uh, rich people out there. I'd rather give my money to them rather than to uh, some bureaucrat who just uh, is power seeking. So uh, yeah, business is actually big in a free market when it serves the customer. Now in certain restricted economies where we have cronyism, the business is in cahoots with the government, but we just, I would say you want to eliminate those special privileges and open up the free market. Uh, Edward, can you tell us a little bit about your book and and what you discuss in that? Ah, my book, my favorite. 
book, <laughs> Private Governance. I published this with Oxford University Press. It's actually a history of the origin of private rules and regulations and markets that most people don't even realize exist. So for example, the precursor to the London Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange were coffee houses in London. People traded in Jonathan's Coffee House in New York City, Tontine Tavern and Coffee House. They didn't have any formally designed place to meet. They ended up showing up there and they created what ended up being a private club to create and enforce rules. They would have uh, defaulters' names put on a blackboard. We can think about this as the first distributed ledger of all time. So if somebody was unreliable, this guy is now have this broadcast to other people. They could kick that person out of the club. And eventually London Stock Exchange adopted as its motto, my word is my bond. So we have a private certification agency called the London Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange saying, we are putting our good housekeeping house, a stamp of approval on the brokers who meet here. And this was self-regulating for hundreds of years. And by the time the United States government implemented the Securities and Exchange Act, they basically implemented a lot of rules that the private parties already had. So rules and regulations coming from the market privately, not from the government. Now, which, which exchange, they were both in coffee houses. Which one started first? It was the London Exchange, right? Yeah, so 1600 roughly was around the first uh, Amsterdam Bourse. 1700 roughly was the advent of, uh, or the ascent of, I'm, I'm rounding off, of course, of London stock markets. And the uh, New York markets really started getting big towards the end of the 1800s. And that's why we see their modern building of the New York Stock Exchange built uh, right around 100 years ago, I believe in like 1906 or something like that. So that is quite a tremendous achievement that they had by, the, by that time. I think that the whole concept is pretty interesting and fascinating and even cool that you got these markets that just develop and then the people that are running them, they're creating rules, they're, they're enforcing those rules. That, that's pretty cool. And I think we see that now when you talk about blockchain and the sure. Bitcoin markets that have been exploding. And, and, but those are, it's cool to see new markets develop. That's right. So when a market can provide assurance that people are not going to be defrauded or defaulted upon, that makes that marketplace valuable. We see that with eBay, the simplest you know, transactions on eBay, all the way through the most complicated transactions today that you'll see on a futures exchange. The futures exchange manages and assumes counter counterparty default risk. So when you make a transaction there, you don't even have to worry about your counterparty delivering because the exchange is going to assume that risk. The blockchain technology, to me, I got really excited about a few years ago when I started realizing that it could be used for all types of transactions to enable people to see that the other party has what they have, help pre-reconcile trade, and then closer to instantly execute that trade rather than having to wait a few days or even longer sometimes 
with a lot of these modern stock transactions. Yeah, I, I think that is pretty exciting. So uh, you, you are a, a proponent of the blockchain technology. What do you think about all these new regulations that are coming in? How is that impacting it? And is this just like what we saw with the New York Stock Exchange? It's going to be yeah. damaging. Yeah, so I do believe that a lot of the products out there are poorly conceived, and I wouldn't be surprised if most of them go broke in the exact same way that Silicon Valley, most firms go broke. That is a fact. But Silicon Valley still is tremendously valuable, even if just a small fraction of these firms go well. We have what we might think about as permissionless innovation in Silicon Valley. You just come up with this new website or whatever you want to do, a new software, and then see if it works. In this initial coin offering market, you've got a lot of companies trying to uh, experiment with different technologies, not just currency, cryptocurrency, but using algorithms to enforce contracts. I think it's very exciting. The ICO market, the initial coin offering market, is basically surpassing or just leaving the uh, uh, initial public offering requirements, rules, and regulations. In many cases, these are done outside the United States. The Securities Exchange Commission has really no idea what most of these entities are. Now, that's you know an issue. People, I would say, <laughs> I personally don't invest in any of them. I I'm in my own investments as a plain vanilla guy. Um, so I'm not giving advice to anybody else. Uh, please don't take this advice. It's just my own personal opinion. Uh, but I do think that it's neat that people who are willing to assume weird risks have the potential to be making a lot of money. And certain people have made money. I would say if we start adding huge fixed costs of regulations, for all of these products, it's just going to get in the way of a tremendous amount of potential experimentation, and I would say that would be bad. Yeah. Now, I agree with you totally, and what again, what happens is, okay, so these ICOs come out, and I think it's fantastic that they don't have to go through all the burdens, right? It, it just, it's an opportunity. It gives people the opportunity that an IPO would have. Uh, however, there's going to be people that are excited, right? They're, they got that fear of missing out. They want to yeah. ride the bandwagon. Yeah. You know, it's hot. They're not going to do research. They're just going to throw their money down. So they're going to make a lot of mistakes. They're going to get burned. And who are they going to cry to? They're going to go cry into the government and they're going to say, come help me. Yeah. Really? And I'm not, I'm not, I get it. It's human behavior. Economics is probably a study of human behavior as well. They want to get in on it, so they make bad decisions. So we need to help people not make those bad decisions, yeah. but we shouldn't try to control them either. Right. I just was in Las Vegas, and I just lost a million dollars at the table. <laughs> just kidding. I do feel bad <laughs> for the people who make those imprudent choices, and I would say the ideal is to help educate people to not do crazy things. And uh, if one is going to be – investing in what we might call a crazy market, realize that it can all evaporate. And, and uh, it's not for the faint of heart, frankly. But uh, I would still say, however, if someone's willing to assume those risks, in many cases, 
people started off with small amounts of money when things were not very high, especially with some of the early cryptocurrencies. And now it's, it's, it's boomed into a very high value. So even if certain people lose money in those markets, a lot of it was not a huge initial investment to begin with. Yeah. So, you know, that's a trade-off, I would say. Uh, again, don't, don't listen to my <laughs> I'm not giving investment advice, but it's not for the faint of heart. Well, here, here's what I would say is that it's just like anything else in that you don't let your emotions run your investments. Do your research. You know, dive in. You're a researcher. That's what you do. You dive in. You study the topic. You call the people that are running it. You go visit them. You see what they're doing. You have them share their vision with you. Then you know if they're in a scam or not when you really pull things back and not just a operate on emotions. Uh, I mean, you can learn more, but unfortunately, there's just going to be so much potential problems that we really would have a difficult time even figuring out. And so, again, that's why <laughs> I'm personally just invested in big blue chips, but uh, yeah. you know, I'm a kind of and, a conservative investor that way. But and even that is a risk, right? I mean, worse. yeah, uh, everything. nothing's guaranteed. I Nothing is guaranteed in life. Mattress, that's right. <laughs> Right. And, and we don't want to live like that either. Uh, you've got to be yeah. out looking for opportunities. Very cool. Okay. Yeah, so, so again, just want to let everyone know this is just, well, we got a big disclaimer. We got a big disclaimer, right? Yeah. Uh, a huge disclaimer that says uh, investing is high risk. You can lose all of your money. Do they have those disclaimers in Vegas? <laughs> <laughs> I, after I lost that million dollars, I just went to the, to the, to the dealer, I said, you know, could we just take that one back? But for some reason, he, uh, he said no. <laughs> yeah, right. So going back to the current economy, we've got some good things happening and some bad things happening. Uh, how long do you, does it usually take for, looks like these tariffs, you think that's negative. How long does that actually take to have an impact on the, on the economy and how negative of an impact do you think that'll be? Well, it can be immediate. So if people see that certain products are going to be more expensive, then that will get priced into those products' stock prices today. So there was an unfortunate story about a, uh, an American keg, beer keg manufacturer realizing that the price of, um, I guess it's steel, that kegs are made out of, I'm not sure, stainless steel, uh, was going to go up, even though they were the last American cake manufacturer, they now can't compete with foreign cake manufacturers because foreign cake manufacturers can buy the steel at the world price. The American cake manufacturer can't. And now that company's like on the brink of bankruptcy. And that is sad. That is destroying American business, this hardworking uh, individually owned company is getting hammered and that can happen right away. So a lot of the companies that have to deal with um, international competition, they need to be buying uh, products, whether from abroad or from the United States, even if they're buying American steel, if that pushes up the price of steel in general, that company is negatively harmed. So I think that the tariffs have actually led to a lot of companies, manufacturers actually being harmed already. And I would suggest that's one of the reasons why the 
market has softened. Last year, things were going really well. And one of the possible reasons is because of this higher deregulatory environment. Now we're in a higher international trade uh, regulation environment. So it's like good and bad mixed at the same time. Now, what, what was the driving factor for pushing for these tariffs? Like what, what's the end goal and what did the, the regulators see as the benefit? Yeah, so there's this, I would argue, this outdated set of ideas, which most all economists reject. But it's this idea that when somebody buys something from somebody else, because they lose the money, the buyer is somehow worse off. So it would be as if I just got my haircut yesterday, I just lost money to my barber and I'm somehow worse off. I have a trade deficit with my barber and I'm somehow worse off. That that misses is You're getting the value of the haircut. I have my haircut. <laughs> yeah. I'm no longer a hippie as I almost was. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to have a, a permanent trade deficit with my barber, with right. Whole Foods with the restaurant that is around the corner. I, I've, they've never given me a dollar, but frankly, they've given me tons of things. I would argue the same thing is true when an American manufacturer like Apple chooses to buy internal products, chips for its phones from a Chinese supplier. We now have better American produced phones and we now have more as, as consumers, and Apple has more as producers. You start hammering Apple, they're just going to be more at a disadvantage to the Samsungs of the world. So this idea that we need to be hoarding money, never spending money, dates back to this old philosophy or economic set of ideas called mercantilism, which really resonates with a lot of people who are obsessed about the trade deficit. We need to get rid of the trade deficit. Um, in reality, I would say anytime we buy something, we're getting something in return. A friend of mine, Don Boudreau, refers to the trade deficit as the goods surplus. We're giving money, we're getting goods. Right. Now, is part of the reason to try to stimulate production here in the United States, like they're saying, okay, well, if it's more expensive overseas, then we will now produce it here. Yeah, that's the basic mentality. And, and, you know, I, I kind of understand it. I used to feel that way when I was in high school before I studied economics and I would listen to the news about, oh, we're losing jobs. So yes, that's the motivation is if we can somehow raise the trade barriers, we can prevent foreign competition from competing with American companies. But what it misses is all of the American manufacturers right now who have to buy inputs, ingredients for, our, for their products. Sometimes they need to buy those products from abroad. Even if they're buying those products from their ingredients from America, if trade barriers increase the price of ingredients, the American manufacturer is going to get hammered. So it's not yeah. helpful. Now, in the situation of this beer company, did, do you know if they, they bought their steel overseas for the kegs? My understanding, it's American-made steel, American company, but because oh. of the prospect of tariffs increasing 
the price of all steel, including American steel, because now there's this rush to buy American steel because of the prices of all steel goes up, including Chinese steel. Then they're like, okay, well, we just can't compete with the Mexican keg manufacturing company. And a lot of beer producers went to them and said, oh, you know, it's cool. We're, we're local beer. We're going to buy local yeah. American-made kegs. But for the ones who don't understand that or can't see that, they said they can't justify pricing that, giving those higher prices to consumers. So right. really an unintended consequence of the regulation. Now, if I, I think another problem with that is the production capabilities for steel here is pretty low. So right. if everyone tries to start buying it here, we don't have the ability to fill the orders because we don't have the production. Now, if we did ramp up some, some steel creation here, then do you think it could be a potential benefit long-term? Yeah, of course we could, we could raise Silicon Valley and Manhattan and, and put up huge steel mills and, and, you know, return us to the 1930s or whenever we were at the apex of steel production. But the fact is uh, Silicon Valley jobs are paying much more than steel jobs. Manhattan finance jobs are paying much more than steel jobs. And it's unfortunate when people like their old, old jobs and those jobs are no longer around, but you know, over time, there's been a steady increase in income of American workers. And on average, overall, American wages have gone up. In Silicon Valley, they used to produce, they used to produce Ford Mustangs. They used to produce Chevy, Chevy Novas. In Silicon Valley, it's really surprising, uh, but those jobs just don't make sense to do there anymore. Instead, people can do higher valued things. Right. And I also think that if they did start to m- produce steel, I think it would be hard to fill those positions, uh, mainly because people sure. don't really want to do that anymore. The young, I, the young people don't want to go to work in a steel mill. They want to work oh, in, in technology. Exactly. Yeah. Like, we, we need to bring back the coal mines, save the coal mines. <laughs> like That's the worst thing we want to say. Of course, I feel bad for the people who have to get new jobs, but if there's better jobs available, yeah. that's good. We should be celebrating that. Yeah. I, I mean, those were, that was tough work. Blue collar work is tough work. And I really sure. salute the guys that do it. And I'm not saying we don't still have blue collar jobs, but um, you know, people died in those jobs. Oh no, I would never want to have to do it. And I think we should yeah. be celebrating capitalism or opening up all these new opportunities that we never had before. Yeah, excellent. Well, you know, this has been a really good conversation. You brought up some great points. So thanks for taking the time to be on the show today. Um, Can you tell us, tell the the listeners how they can get in contact with you and how they can uh, go to your website or get your book? We're going to put it, we are going to put it below on this site as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. My book's available on Amazon, uh, uh, Edward Stringham's Private Governance. But my real passion right now is the American Institute for Economic Research, A-I-E-R dot O-R-G. We've got daily commentary on economic issues, uh, ranging the spectrum. One of our big areas of focus recently and throughout our history has been sound money. And just talking about the importance of free markets, property rights, and 
generally a free society. Edward, are you creating content for that website? I am creating some content for that website. And you are going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> I probably will. Tell me the, uh, the web address again. A-I-E-R dot O-R-G. Okay, and that's the American Institute for Economic Research. Go there right now. Every second. <laughs> well, again, thanks so much for being on the show. Great information. Thank you. Thanks, Casey. See you around. You've been listening to the Finance the Markets Cash Flow Hacking Podcast. To get all the best financial growth strategies, visit financeandmarkets.com and claim your wealth report strategy. Thanks for tuning in to another insightful episode of How to Trade It with Casey Stubbs. We hope you found today's discussion valuable and inspiring. Remember, the road to trading mastery is a continuous one, and your commitment to learning and growing as a trader is the key to your success. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please reach out to us at podcast at tradingstrategyguides.com. Keep listening, keep learning, and keep trading your way to victory. Until next time.